Today's scripture comes from the gospel according to Luke. I'm reading to you Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. Jesus said, But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, will be placed into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words that I say and the reflections that go through all of our minds, may these give you pleasure, God. You who are our rock. You who save us. Amen. When my older brother Rick and I were kids, we were very fixated on fairness. From my perspective as the younger sister, I wanted things to be fair, and my older brother thought he should get more because he was older and a boy. That's how it seemed to me. So we were very concerned about fairness. And mom and dad would do their best to try to give us equal portions of cake or equal kind of gifts. And Rick and I were continually thinking that the way our parents handled things was not fair. Finally, when there were big items that needed to be split, they gave up and did the brilliant parents thing of one cuts and the other picks. That's how we're going to handle it. I know that happens in the nickel home as well. One cuts, the other picks. And so Rick and I developed surgical precision. We would, we would cut this. It would be 50-50. No 49-51 in the Easley household. We were going to get it just right so it was exactly equal. So I watched us do this for a period of time, and then I thought, let me try something. So one time, there was a big piece of something we were splitting, and I thought, now, what if I cut it unevenly? If I cut it and one piece is, is significantly larger than the other, surely Rick will give me the bigger piece. <laughs> it seemed logical. So I cut it very unevenly. My brother took the larger piece, and I howled. And Rick said, you cut, I pick. 
<laughs> but Rick, I thought you'd give me the bigger piece. And he, I don't remember what he said, but something along the lines of, sucker, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> like, what were you thinking, Jane? In what universe was your brother going to take the smaller piece? It was never going to happen. We can struggle about fairness, and we don't want to be a sucker, and we don't want to be a chump, and we don't want to be taken advantage of. And so we may, in response, become vigilant. We're paying attention. We want everything to be fair. We want our fair share. We don't want to be taken advantage of. And that can take us over. We can become obsessed with what is our right and what belongs to us. And pretty soon, we're so busy being vigilant that we're anxious all the time about what's fair and what might be offensive. And pretty soon, our lives can become quite anxious and unhappy with all this vigilance about what's going to be exactly fair. Is something going to measure up? In the midst of that tendency, that very human tendency for us to want our part, Jesus comes and messes it all up. <laughs> Jesus comes and offers us this kind of counterintuitive teaching about generous love, abundant love, loving even when we're going to get nothing back. And it's powerful, but it's also challenging, and parts of it we really struggle with. And so I want to spend some time with you working through this text and seeing some of the places where it's been misused, but also looking at the real richness and depth that this text brings to our own spiritual lives. The passage I read to you is actually the second portion of a longer part in the Gospel of Luke that's known as the Sermon on the Plain, as in the flat place, not the aeroplane. Uh, we're much more familiar with the Matthew version. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's the Sermon on the Mount, and we read in Matthew 5 about how Jesus went up the mountain and he taught. And the first part of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. This is pretty familiar to a lot of us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And we love the Beatitudes. And then after that, Jesus gives quite a long discourse in Matthew, kind of explaining it and, and containing basically the same material that I read to you in Luke. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the version we know a lot better. What I'm reading to you from today is the Luke version. And in Luke, it's not on a mountain, it's on a plain, on a flat place. And Jesus offers blessings, but he also offers woes. So, oh, drat, I took the page out. Okay, we're going to get there quickly. So I want to read to you both blessings and woes that Jesus offers in this passage. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. But Jesus doesn't just offer blessings. He offer, also offers woes. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. As we hear the blessings and the woes, I don't think it's hard to figure out why the Beatitudes are more popular. <laughs> right? Don't we love the Beatitudes? It's all blessings. We read Luke, it's blessings and woes, makes us a little uncomfortable. Which category are we going to fall in? Are we going to experience blessing or woe? 
And then Jesus goes on and offers this powerful teaching about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. And if someone takes your outer garment, give your inner garment and lend and don't expect anything back. And again, we, we hear it, it speaks to us, but we may also really struggle with it. I was looking at the, the passage about lending, expecting nothing in return. So a couple years ago, a friend of mine was going through a hard time was in what I perceived to be kind of a short-term cash flow issue. And I lent a pretty decent sum of money to that friend. I love that friend. I want the best for that person. But I expected it back. I haven't gotten it back. I'm not happy about that. <laughs> I'm reading the gospel passage that's saying you're supposed to lend and expect nothing in return. And I'm thinking, you know, if I'd known I wasn't going to get it back, I'm not sure I would have lent it. And now it's kind of a thing in our relationship, and I feel awkward about it. And, I mean, there's a good question in here. Is Perhaps the relationship is worth more than the money was. But we struggle over this stuff. Jesus is saying, do things even when you won't get it back. Love when you won't get it back. This is a passage that many people found deep, find deeply profound, but it's also a passage that makes a lot of people really angry. This is a passage that has been misused. It has been, been misused over time by people in power who have used turn the other cheek to show why slaves could get hit a second time. That says about how you should love your enemies, implying that justice isn't all that important. So this is a passage that some people just hate. They look at this and they say, really, is Jesus offering bad news to the poor? And it can't be. It cannot be that Jesus is offering bad news to the poor because how did this passage start out? Blessed are you who are poor. It, this can't be meant to be used to oppress those who are poor and who've been victimized. Sadly, that's too often how it's been used. So I want to reflect with you on this passage and I want to bring up three different points within it. The first about the meaning of love and how complex that can be. The second, about the true power of forgiveness and regaining our strength. And the third, about true generosity. So my first point about love. William Barclay, in his commentary on Luke, points out that the word that Jesus uses for love in this passage is agape. Now, in Greek, there are three words for love. The first one is eros, like erotic love, romantic love. We're familiar with eros. The second word for love is phileo, and that is like the root of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is uh, philanthropy. <laughs> it is brotherly love. It is caring for another person as an equal. So there's eros, there's phileo, but then there's agape. And agape love is over and above love. Some people would argue it's selfless love. Barclay argues it's wanting the best for another person. It's, it's a deeply committed wanting the best for another person love. That's agape. When Jesus invites us to want the best for another people, another person, we need to think about what's best. And that's where this passage has sometimes been misused, not thinking about what's best. 
Early on in my years of ministry, I had the opportunity to attend a training on clergy and domestic violence that was led by an organization called the Center for the Prevention of Sexual and Domestic Violence. Now that organization is called Faith Trust. And it talked about how many clergy had used this passage to tell spouses who were being abused in their homes that they had to stay in the marriage. And I will tell you, after the 8 o'clock service, someone come up to me, came up to me and said, yep, a family member was quoted this passage and told they had to remain in an abusive relationship. If it is agape, if it is love wanting the best for someone, remaining in that relationship is not the most loving. Or to pull it back to maybe start with an easier angle, what about alcoholism? If a person struggles with alcoholism, it is not loving to buy that person alcohol. That's not over and above love. That's not wanting the best for someone. It's empowering something that's really hurting that person. Agape is the love that says, yeah, I'm not going to buy you booze. That's poison for you. Or in situations of domestic violence, now this gets really tricky, but remaining in an abusive situation, enabling the person to continue abusing you, whether that's physical or mental, emotional abuse, that's not loving. The person is misbehaving, continuing an opportunity for them to misbehave isn't the most loving thing to do. Now, I know this is so tricky, and so I want to tread very gingerly here. There are a lot of reasons why it's really hard for people in abusive relationships to get out of the relationship. So I don't want to make, I don't want to do a different kind of abuse by picking on people who aren't able to, lose, to leave those relationships. And people who have been able to leave those relationships talk about that that wasn't doing good for either of us. <laughs> that wasn't healthy for either of us. The loving thing was to exit the unhealthy relationship, if, if that's possible for the person. We need to recalibrate what love is. Love is what's best for the other, which isn't enabling bad behavior or enabling something that's poison for another person. Jesus didn't mean this passage to justify remaining abused, to justify slavery, to justify getting beaten up. That's not the point. The point instead is the opposite. It's the point of claiming your freedom and claiming your true personhood. Um, there is something powerful in not allowing someone who wants to beat us up, not allowing them to make us a victim, or not allowing them to own our, our minds. I think about uh, friends of mine, one in particular, but friends of mine who've gone through really hard divorces. And in a really hard divorce, there is sometimes a phase in which the person being left, if it's that kind of divorce, the person being left becomes absolutely obsessed with the spouse who left. So what sometimes happens is there's a divorce, this person exits the marriage, this person remains behind, and then this person is livid, hurt, angry, ashamed, and that's really understandable. That's a very reasonable, realistic set of emotions after that kind of suffering. The challenge is, how long are you going to stay in that place? And we probably have all known situations in which a spouse left, the spouse has gone on with his or her life, the remaining spouse 
is still obsessed. <laughs> this person's gone on. This person still has their spouse in their head. They might as well be married. This suffering continues. It's as if the person is still in their head abusing them. And that isn't freeing at all. I think of a friend of mine who went through a phase like that and then got to a point, and it, it was her timing, but got to a point where she realized, you know what? My ex-husband doesn't get to live in my head anymore. <laughs> He's moved on. I want to move on. I want to forgive him. And she forgave him, not excusing his behavior toward her, but releasing any vengeance toward him. She thought, you know what? That's his business. He's moved on. God take care of him. I want to get on with my own life. Forgiving wasn't a victim stance for her. It was an empowerment stance. It was her saying, I want to move on with my life. I want to reclaim the real estate of my head. It's beautiful to watch people forgive the release they can experience from that. Or we think about the power of nonviolent resistance. We think about Dr. King's training and Gandhi and nonviolence. And when African Americans in our country were being oppressed and told they couldn't sit at this lunch counter or told they had to drink from the colored drinking fountain, whatever it was, the incredible courage it took for the African Americans who practiced nonviolent resistance and sat at that lunch counter and sat at that lunch counter, I deserve to be here, even when people abused them or poured hot coffee on them. And, and yet, in their refusal to act like animals, in their, you're going to treat me like an animal, I'm going to respond like a person. You're going to treat me with hate, I'm going to respond with love. I choose to be more powerful than what you want to put on me. If you had an opportunity to be in protests and resistance movements, you feel that sense of empowerment. I'm in a situation that would oppress me and say I'm lesser, and I choose my full humanity. That is an amazing power. And loving our enemies can give us that power. Forgiving those who have hurt us can give us that power. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not saying you all need to forgive. These things have their own seasons and their own time, and we can do abuse by saying, yeah, you've, get, you've gotten hurt, get over it. I don't mean that. And I know Jesus didn't mean that. But to be able to say, in time, to forgive is going to be empowering. To choose your own humanity and not let someone else turn you into a hater, that's strength. That's courage. That's loving your enemies. What about the final point he makes? It talks about a measure and a measure being poured in and shaken down and stirred and then poured into the lap. And you may hear that and think, what in the world are they talking about? That doesn't come out of our culture. It comes out of Jesus' rural culture. In Jesus' day, there might be a farm laborer who worked all day with a tunic. And they had kind of a tunic and maybe some kind of overcloth. And at the end of the day, some of them would be paid in grain. And so a good manager, I'm sorry, let me start with a bad one. A dishonest manager would take some grain, pour it into a measure, pour the measure into that kind of extra, it'd be as if you pulled up the fabric to receive the grain, would pour it into that. But a good, a just manager knew that sometimes the grain doesn't pack in all the way. And so you'd pour the grain in, but you'd also shake it to make more space. And then you'd press it down, and then you'd add more grain. Then you'd have a full measure. 
And then that generous, honest manager would pour that, and the person would receive this lap full of grain and take it home to his or her family with gratitude, this full measure, over-measure, over-abundance that was given. Again, that's not our culture. The best example I could think of it was measuring brown sugar. I remember in home ec class being taught, you can pour brown sugar into a one-cup measure, but it, that's not going to give you a full cup. You've gotta, there might be little crumblies and clods in there. You've got to pack it down and then put in more and then pack it down, and then you take your knife and you cut across. That's how you get a full one-cup measure. That's the same. You, you don't want to shortchange someone. You want to give them the full measure. And in some ways, you want it to be overflowing, just as the laborer who receives this overflowing amount of grain. That is the generosity of our God, inviting us to be people who love to overflowing, who give to overflowing. There's such a profound image in Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, how the sower just throws seed out and throws it out and, and knows some of the seed is going to hit on hard ground. It's never going to grow up. Some of the seed is going to go on. Uh, it's going to grow up quickly, but it's going to get too hot, and it's going to die. But some of that seed, some of that seed is going to land on good soil, and it's going to have an unbelievable yield. That is God's generous generosity to us. God is merciful to the unjust and the ungrateful. God's merciful to us. God pours out love and grace into our lives, and we are invited to respond with that same abundance, that kind of abundant love, that holding our humanity and being forgiving, and that giving uh, financially and from our hearts in generous ways, over, overflowing, knowing the amazing good that God can do. Brothers and sisters, I know this is a hard passage, and I know it's been abused. I know that some people hear it, and they just immediately cringe. But there's also real power in it to be generous, to be loving, to extend yourself and claim your full humanity. What joy there is in that life, and what freedom. Amen. Before we move into the prayers, I just want to bring to your attention something that's in our bulletin. Uh, Gail George has been our coordinator of welcoming ministries for 11 years. She's done an amazing job. She is ready to retire. So her last day will be April 2nd. We're looking for someone to succeed her as coordinator of welcoming ministries. Our assumption is that our member is going to come, or that our new person is going to come from one of you. We certainly could have someone apply from outside, but they wouldn't know the community to be able to recognize who the guests are. So I'm asking for your prayers. Um, perhaps you're someone who might want to apply for it. Perhaps you think of someone else and think, boy, they would do a great job. The job description is on the website already, and you can get information from the church office. Uh, we'd really love to have someone in place by late March so Gail could do that training before the April 2nd time. But please hold this in your prayers. And we'll have more information closer to the time about how we'll be celebrating Gail's ministry. Thank you.